0: Good morning. Good morning, family. It's so nice to be with you this morning.
1: Roger, grab your seats, guys.
0: Everyone's having a good chat. It's always the danger of unleashing you all to give each other hugs. Um, Yeah, I just want to say it's so wonderful to be with you, and it's always lovely to be with my family here. And I always consider it a huge honor and privilege to be on this platform. And I just want to thank you for giving your time and your energy this morning. And I don't take it for granted. It's a real gift um, to me and to to one another. Um, Today is our last week of speaking on our sermon topic of discernment and ethics. And today I'm going to look at it through the lens of discipleship. And, yeah, I think all of us that have preached on this, this topic have, have um, done so with fear and trembling. And I think last week Hannah said it's, we, we, um, we dread to tread on this topic. And I think that's just because when you're up here, you really have to examine your own life and your own heart in regard to what the Lord's doing in the Spirit. So, yeah, I just want you to encourage you to know that I'm right there with you. And um, I want to start by asking you a question this morning. Um, Has anyone here ever gotten lost? Raise your hand. Just wave at me. Okay, we're all in solidarity, right? (laughs) Has anyone taken a wrong turn and gotten yelled at by their wife? Hey, yeah, yeah, Dave. (laughs) Um, You know, or just had a little bit of a lack of judgment? You know, I always tell young couples, all of you youngsters over there, if you can survive putting up a tent together <laughs> or getting lost together, you could probably get married. It'll, it'll probably be okay. If you can follow instructions together and not kill one another, you, you could probably get married. It'll be all right. If you can't, I think you should first go to marriage prep. Um, so I'm going to tell you a story about a lack of judgment in Dave and I's life. It's a rather embarrassing story, but it's a good one. Um, many years before we had children, we used to visit my family in the States quite often. I'm just a little girl from the backwoods of Missouri. Um, but every year we try and go and we try and do a road trip and see a little bit more of the States. And this particular year, um, my, we, we teamed up with my folks and we decided to do 10 national parks in 10 days. Here's Duncan coming to have a listen on the front row. Thanks. But <laughs> um, so anyway, so we did 10 national parks in 10 days, and my big bucket list was seeing the Grand Canyon National Park. All right. So that, for me, was just beyond um, a dream. And that's all right. That's, that's the wrong way around. And I don't know. Has anyone here been to the Grand Canyon? Dave, call, Dave. Okay, three of you. Four of you. All right. It It is really, I mean... You can't, no photograph can ever describe it. It is, it it, it is the most glorious place. You can understand why the Native Americans, it's sacred to them. And they consider it a spiritual place. And you stand in complete awe. I mean, there's just, there's nothing on earth that I've seen that compares. So this is actually a photo that I took on my iPhone, if you can believe it. It looks like a painting. I mean, it doesn't even look real. But we were so excited, so we we got to the top. And we were meant to only be there, you know, to see it. And Dave and I thought, oh, my word. We heard there's 5 million visitors a year, and only 1% of them actually hike the canyon. So we were like, we're experienced hikers, you know. We got this. Let's do it. We're going to do it. We're going to stay an extra night, and we're going to hike down to the Colorado River that snakes through the canyon, and we're going to hike back out. So, mind you, we did not start this trip with any hiking equipment, backpacks, water, anything. We had tackies. I think we had one backpack. We had five liters of water, four apples, and a cracker. And <laughs> often my parents drop us off. We say, okay, we'll meet you at the, at the drop-off point um, at the end of the day. Okay, no, that's good. Off we go. And, I mean, we are it's beautiful. It's amazing. We're like on a high. We're running, and we're so excited and we're passing all the tourists, taking photos, and we're like, this is amazing, this is so easy. Who are these people that say that this road is so tricky? My lovey, just go sit there with Connor. Go sit down there. So off we go, and um, before long, we start to see signs that say like, do not hike from the rim to the river and back in one day. So we're like, oh, those are just Americans having signs, you know. So we're off we're, we're like, this is so easy. This trail's beautiful. It's so well marked. And um, then we start to see signs that say, do not attempt death, death, death. And uh, Boston Marathon runner so-and-so dies in the Grand Canyon by getting lost from her partner. Do, do not attempt. And Dave says to me, those are, those are just signs for unfit Americans. We're going to trudge on. Okay, off we go. And eventually, there's a sign that says, tourists, turn back here. (laughs) So we're like, no, we're experienced hikers, you know, with our five liters of water. But the thing about the Grand Canyon is that you descend, in 10 kilometers of hiking, you descend 1,500 meters into the heart of the canyon. And what we didn't know that day was that the canyon can get up to 42 degrees Celsius in the bottom. It's like a furnace. And it's the middle of summer. So we get to the bottom of the canyon, and it is boiling. And all along the route, Dave keeps telling me, I'm sure there'll be water points along the way. This is America. And there are no water points along the way. So eventually he's like, no, 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 there'll definitely be a water point at the Colorado River. You know, we just have to make it to the bottom. We'll fill up our canisters and, you know, we'll, we'll hike back out. Okay. So off we go. We get to the bottom. You can't even touch the Colorado River. It's under a huge suspension bridge. So we look at each other. We hunt around, there are no watering points anywhere. There is not a single tap. Um, And now all of the tourists have turned back and all the day hikers are heading to the other side of the river. So I can see my husband has suddenly gone into calculation mode. And I think we had about one liter of water left. So he turns to me and he says, not only are we out of water, but I definitely think that we're running out of daylight. So we have seriously miscalculated our steps here. And we actually need to hightail it out of here because otherwise we're gonna be stuck in the Grand Canyon alone at night with no water. So okay, all right, so we we do a giant U-turn. And about a kilometer up the trail, I just hit a massive wall. And I start seeing double and I'm not stringing words together properly and I'm delusional and I'm literally sweating salt out of every pore of my body. Like literally salt is like rubbing off of my skin cause I'm so dehydrated and I literally just sit down and I t- tell Dave, listen, I think you're gonna have to leave me here and you're gonna have to go for help because I don't think I can put another foot forward. like. I I don't think I can do this. And thank God I had a good man that day (laughs) that turned around and he said, you are going to get up and you're going to put one foot in front of the other and you are going to walk yourself out of this canyon, Maria, because there's no one to come to help us right now. We had no cell phone signal. My parents were waiting for us. We were sure they were going to send like the ranger search and rescue team out if we weren't up there at the right time. And he just said, "We, we have to know walk this thing out so somehow he managed to give me some water an apple get me up enough and he put his arm around me and he literally walked me step by step out of the canyon that day guys I was never so happy to see tourists <laughs> in my whole life but <laughs> when we got to the tourist part I was like oh I'm gonna live <gasps> I didn't die on the Great Canyon I'm so happy and then my mother arrives and she says do you know that people die here every year like, I didn't need to know that. So, you might be asking why I'm telling you this story, but it's going to unfold as we go. So, discernment, if you read about discernment, it actually means the ability to judge well. And if we take it a step further, it actually also means to look at the underneath of a matter. So, discernment is to be able to see past what's on the surface and to see behind it to see what's really going on and obviously ethics are actually our moral our morals that guide us so that's what we're speaking about today the ability to judge well and if we read in the New Testament we actually read Paul tells us there's two very specific things about discernment the first thing is that it's a skill we can hone you can read about these I'm not gonna read the scriptures today because we're a little bit behind time but you can read about this in Hebrews 5 and in um, 2 Corinthians but basically Paul says it's a skill that every Christian is born with. He speaks about being an infant and on milk and growing into a mature Christian who knows how to discern the will of God. So it's a skill that we all need to grow in as Christians, but there's also a gift of discernment that the Holy Spirit gives us. And we know those people, hey? Those are our very discerning friends that elbow us in the side and say, hey, this uh, not is all as it appears here. They're fantastic at seeing the underneath of a matter. So some people get a a double portion of discernment in a gift form, but all of us as, as children of God need to be walking a journey of discernment in our discipleship journeys. And that's what I want to speak a little bit about today. And I want to debunk the myth that we speak about in Christianese of discerning the will of God. You know, we get very obsessed with that phrase. You've surely heard it a lot. I need to know what, the, what is the will of God in this monumental life choice of mine. But I want to tell you that it doesn't start in those monumental places. Discipleship, it starts with the discipleship, and discernment started at the top of the Grand Canyon. It didn't start at the, when we were in the, the heart of the Grand Canyon, asking what we're going to do next. It should have started at the top, so it's part of our discipleship journey. It's a day-to-day walk with who Jesus is. And discernment is actually really hard work because there are three key things to living a life of discernment that our, our, our world today don't, doesn't give us time for, and that's, that's slowing down, paying attention, and listening to the Spirit. So our world isn't conducive to that, and our human nature isn't conducive to that. So it takes a bit of hard work on our part. And so we really need to work backwards from our behaviors to our actions to what comes before, which is actually our thoughts. And I love um, Dr. Caroline Leaf. Some of you may know her. She's a South African neuroscientist that lives in the States now. But she says that research shows that just 5 to 16 minutes a day of focused, meditative capturing of your thoughts actually shifts your prefrontal cortex. 5 to 16 minutes. It's not a lot. What else can you do in 5 to 16 minutes? So all of us actually have time to be in the Word and to be capturing our thoughts with the Lord. Because I think that the profound thing about that is that our thoughts are so powerful that they create gray matter in our brains. Did you catch that part? That's how powerful your thoughts are. They're actually creating pathways in your brain. They're creating gray matter within. So we need to, we need to start with where our thoughts are. So a good question that I like to ask myself with regards to my thoughts, and I'm learning this in my discipleship journey, um, we, we're learning about desolation and consolation, and doing that practice at the end of each day. What thoughts were, brought me joy? What thoughts brought me pain today? And then the question we ask ourselves is, did this thought originate from myself, or did it originate with God? And that's a good measuring tool when, with regards to thoughts. Did this thought originate within my selfish self? Or did it originate in the heart of God? So that's a good, a good place to start for you. So I think that when we speak about discernment, we need to remember that it's really about the heart of the matter. It's about the motivations behind our thoughts. And that's what Jesus was constantly on about. If you read through the New Testament, I can give you example after example after example of how Jesus actually didn't care as much about what was happening on the outside as he was worried about what was happening on the inside. He said, you're just whitewashed tombs. You, stink. you look great on the outside, you stink on the inside. He said, the cup's clean on the outside, it's full of rotten coffee on the inside. He said, You've, you um, commit adultery with a woman inside your heart's just as good as doing it with your body. You know, he went on and on in almost every single place that he spoke He was speaking about what's the motive of your heart, what's going on on the inside. And so following Jesus is the only thing that's going to keep us anchored to our course. It's the only thing that can can splice right through what's happening in our spirits, right? So this morning, I want to just open up the word, and we're going to look at the life of David, and we're going to, if you've got your Bibles with you, you can flip just to 2 Samuel 11. We're going to do a little bit of reading, and then we're just going to pick up four keys for living a life of discernment from the life of David, 2 Samuel 11. <clears throat> Sorry, I was worshiping a little bit too much this morning. <laughs> My voice is a little bit raspy. Okay, so we're going to start in 11 and then we're going to read a few verses out of chapter 12 as well. So just hold on to your stirrups. All right, 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. but David re- remained behind in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness, and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him, David, uh, sent him to David. When Uriah came home, David asked him how Joab was. How, was the, how were the soldiers and how was the war going? Then David sent Uriah, said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift was from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And then David said to them, "'Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back.' So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk, but in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on the mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, "'Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest. "'Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die.' So while Joab had the city under siege... He put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell, and moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And then if we skip to verse 26, it says, When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned over him. And after a time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So this first part of the story is David's descent down into the heart of that canyon. And the amazing thing to me about this story is that the whole first half of 2 Samuel is about David's absolute glory. It's about this shepherd boy. We know the stories, hey? Shepherd boy turned giant slayer. He is a hymnist, psalmist, worship leader, the man that dances naked before the Lord, gives his all to God, um, writes some of the most beautiful psalms that we still sing. He's a king of kings. He is a wa- warrior king, the anointed one. And it just goes to show us that no one is immune. No one is immune... lacking discernment. And so we can pull a few threads out of the first part of the story. And the first one that I think is really significant is that David steps off course. In verse 1 it tells us, in the spring, when kings go off to war, David stays home. He steps off course. David isn't actually where he's supposed to be. He isn't actually living in the purposeful place that God has for him. He's actually at home. He's bored, idle, and distracted. And so it goes on to tell us that the obvious happens. He sees a beautiful woman. And instead of heeding the first sign that comes his way, The first, do not, you know that sign, do not attempt, is over here. He thinks, ah, I'm not gonna look at that sign. He entertains a thought. I can tell you right now, from very bad experience, that thoughts are easier to stop than behaviors. Thoughts are easier to stop than actions. It's why it's so important. It's why the Apostle Paul said, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Start there, guys. Because sin doesn't hurt God, it hurts us. As we will see in David's life. So he has many opportunities, hey, to turn back. He even says to to his, his friends, who is this person? And... She's not a no one. She's, she's the wife of one of his bodyguards and the daughter of one of his royal councilmen. She's not unknown to him. He knows the stakes are actually high. He actually knows these men. He sleeps with them in caves and fights wars with them. This isn't just anyone. Another sign. Turn back. No tourists pass this point. But David doesn't turn back. He ignores the signs. He carries on. The thought turns into an action. And what happens? The worst happens. You know, we always think our deception can tell us we got away with it. Our deception can actually spin us into a, um, kind of circle of thinking, no one knows, only me, and now you live in this false reality of thinking no one's gonna know. But now he's gotta make a plan. He's gotta figure out how am I gonna get myself out of this canyon. So he makes some plans we see that none of them seem to actually be working out. He tries so hard to entice Uriah to go sleep with his wife. That doesn't work. He tries so hard in all of his strength to cover this up, but none of it's working. So he has only one option, he thinks. Because actually, in the Old Testament, the penalty for an adulterer and adulteress was death. The stakes were extremely high. So he knows that if I come clean, I actually deserve the death sentence. That's what I deserve in this situation. So he's running as hard as he can. And so the other interesting point that we hear in verse 11 from Uriah is that the ark is actually far from David. David. The ark is down in the camp, and David is at leisure at home. So the second key to living a life of discernment is actually living in communion with our Father, being in the place of the presence. David is now very far from his friends, he's very far from his purpose, and he's very far from the heart of worship, which is where God is. In the Old Testament, you had to be where the ark was for worship. That's where the people worshipped. They took it with them into the battle because they knew they needed the Lord. So David's very far from where he should be. He's just descending farther and farther down on his path. So as we see a very stark contrast between Uriah's devotion, actually, and David's leisure and idleness. We can see that he's trying so hard to cook up his own plan and to get out of his own mess. And sadly, he he breaks two of God's probably most holy laws of adultery and murder. And I think the, the powerful point of this is that David commits crimes to cover his own. Whereas Jesus took on a crime he didn't commit and was murdered to cover the crimes of others. Which shows us that not even the best, most amazing, most worthy earthly king could ever compare. That's how fa- far we fall short of how beautiful. Jesus's. So if we carry on reading in chapter 12, we get a bit of a surprise. Now this must be many months later because it says the child was born. And it says, um, if we read from 12, we're going to read 12, verse 1 to 13. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town. One rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he'd brought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children, and it shared his food, and it drank from his cup, and it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him instead. He took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, that man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord says. The God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now there will be a sword forever against your house. And then if we skip to verse 13, it says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son that you born will die. And so, we see here a picture that, you know, things get real when the Lord has to send, when he has to send a prophet in, things are getting very real. He has to send David no more signposts. And this I really believe is because, this is my third key, is that David was living in severe isolation He was very far from his community he wasn't down in the camp with his buddies and his mighty men his counselors he was living a life of isolation and so god sends someone in to reveal truth to him and that's why it's so dangerous guys when we live lives of isolation because we don't have those, those wise words and wise people around us. I want to encourage you when, when your friends of wisdom, people that you know have gifts of discernment, are speaking, heed those signposts. Turn around before you get to the Colorado River. but often we can't see the signposts. Sometimes we're too blinded. So God sends someone to speak. And I find it so fascinating that he uses a parable just like Jesus would to to bring truth to David. But David is still unseeing. He's still unseeing. And David is he's so blind and yet he has this massive reaction. You know, that man must die. He's calling down his own death sentence without knowing it. Be careful of big reactions in people. It's often There's often a, a, a big old plank sitting in an eyeball when there's big reactions towards someone else's sin. Because we have to look inward first and think, whoa, whoa, let me just... Make sure there are no planks sitting here first before I go scratching the dust out of yours. But you know, the beautiful thing about David in this story, the most fascinating thing about him is his heart of humility. He hears Nathan say, you are that man. God has given you everything. Everything you could possibly desire, and if you wanted more, he would have given it to you. That's how good he is. He's so kind, and he's so good. He would have given you anything you could have possibly imagined. But you took the one thing that you couldn't have. It's, it's so like our human nature to want that thing that we can't have. And we don't want to speak to God about it. But the beauty of of David is he says, I have sinned. It's me. You're right. I'm wrong. He takes responsibility for what he's done, knowing full well the consequences that could come. And so yet again, we see this amazing picture Of who God is. He loves David's heart. He's about the heart of the matter. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. Your your sin is forgiven. Your debt is canceled. Your death penalty is gone. The Lord forgives you. This is pre-crucifixion. the Lord forgives you. He's taken away your sin. It's about the heart, guys. From here on out, David is called a man after God's own heart. The adulterous murderer that we just read about the chapter before. It's the same David, that goes on to write the 51st Psalm, and he writes there as a reflection of what's happened. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's so amazing what happens when we confess and we repent. And I don't think that we say those words enough in our charismatic movements today. It's got to be something that happens every day for us. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Every day I wake up and I pray it. And every night I go to sleep and I pray it. Because it keeps him on the throne of my heart. So I want you guys to be encouraged that we are never disqualified. We have a man after God's own heart. He is always ready to turn us around. You know that's what the word repentance means. It means literally to turn direction. Change your course. Walk back out of the canyon. But there are consequences to the things that we do. We still had to walk it out still had to walk that journey from the bottom, step by step, fight the dehydration. But we made it out. And God was so, is so ready at any point in our journeys to turn us around. And that's just the beauty of who he is. And I think the beauty of who David is is that he was a man of deep discernment who was just willing to reset his course. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that You do such amazing things with us when our hearts are right. We're so thankful, God, that we can come to you at any point and turn make a U-turn. We thank you that you pull us out of that that muddy place, and you set our feet upon a rock. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here today. This morning I just really felt to pray for people that want to come home. Feel like confession is a really important part of, of what we're doing today so i'd really want to ask i think i want to ask the elders actually any of the elders can come forward and if you feel like you really want prayer today you want to confess there are things in your life that while we're speaking the holy spirit was pushing fingers on this morning and saying this is something we need to we need to turn from. This is something I want to help you climb out of. I'd love for you to come pray with one of the elders or maybe you have a safe person here that you that you can pray with as well. Confession is really the beginning of of restoration. So maybe there are just things that the Lord's revealing to you. And then there's another group of people I also want to pray for this morning, and I think that's people that are really longing for an awareness of of His presence, a greater awareness of His presence. People that are longing for to live a life of purity and holiness. People that are willing to host the presence of who he is in their day-to-day life.
1: Mm, yes, Lord.
0: So, yeah, Lord, we just thank you. Mm. We thank you for what you're busy with, Lord.
2: When Maria was talking about um, David and, you know, that David was given so much, but he wanted what he didn't, what he wasn't able to, what he shouldn't have had, I was thinking about that's also a picture of the Garden of Eden. Mm, that's true. You know, you can eat all this fruit, but don't eat that one. Mm. And I just thought that maybe today God is showing you something that you shouldn't have. Um, you know it something that you shouldn't have it's like maybe for david maria just the challenge of going down to the bottom of the river was something they shouldn't have had you know but i want to do it i want to do it despite despite the warnings i want to do it i want to do this thing that i shouldn't do and and the beauty of that is that god knows what is beneficial to us um so i just thought i wanted to say that if there's something you know god is wanting you to surrender. That you shouldn't have. Maybe it's an opportunity for you today. Mm. Certainly, on the backdrop of that, he knows what is beneficial to us.
1: Mm. You know, Maria, uh, that's such a good. And Colin also added that that's such a thing about the temptations in the Garden of Eden. One of the common factors was David was sitting still when he should have been active in his kingly role. In his passivity, he fell into the trap. As it was in Eden, in Genesis 3, Adam's passivity led to Eve's deception. So if we're sitting not doing what we should be doing, we can find ourselves vulnerable. So this is very good. I'm going Keith and Janice to come here some of the sages in the church. Just join us a bit. those who like to just come and take some time to speak to one of the leaders bring confession and follow through what Maria was saying come to uh, the side as well and we can um, take time just to pray with you uh, um, if I can, add something else I thought the Lord just would be impressed on me Maria. Um, sometimes people have been stuck for so long in the same set of circumstances and you're longing for a break and you just want to say Lord what is it you want me to believe for? that in my passivity I've not accessed from you. And we want to pray for you. Why we stand together?
3: Okay. Yeah, and just as we stand, I just, you know, it's quite a, you know, if I reflect on the message that, that Maria shared, it's it's quite a challenge. And I think it leaves a lot of us quite somber as well. But I think I really want to encourage you from someone who's, Walked in David's shoes to someone who just yesterday was a real chop to his wife and his kids. Um, it's just from from what seems to be the most mundane to the m- most serious sin I think for me the key is that God wants us to be in his presence. So let's not be apathetic about our journey with him or let's not be fearful about what people say or what even we think about ourselves so I think my encouragement this morning is there's a whole group of people who are willing to be an ear and to love on you without judgment. So if there's something that you need to be free from, come forward. And if you can't do it today, then at least seek the Lord in it on your own and have the authenticity and the truth to deal with it.
1: So we're going to take some time just, just to be before the Lord as a, as a corporate body. And you don't need to rush. Later on we'll have some tea and coffee. And by the way, if you're visiting, this free coffee for your house later, So don't rush off. Go and grab a cup later. Fill in a little form. We'd love to follow through. We want to be community. We don't want to just be a crowd. So keep that in mind. But we're going to just take time. Thanks, God, just lead us in a moment of quiet worship. And there's an invitation here. Some of our leaders are here, some of our elders and and, uh, leading people. If you would like to just come and make confession of something that's happening in your life, circumstances, here's an opportunity. Just come and do that um, just for a few moments and we pray. And if you would like prayer um, to have the passivity that's maybe got you stuck where you are and you'd like God to give you a fresh breakthrough. We'd like you to come over to this side here and we can pray for you as well. Eh? Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Come on, he's